Next, I'd like to read with you from Isaiah 59. Now, Isaiah 59, this is in the, the second half, the second major part of Isaiah, which really is a section that's focused most clearly on God's mercy, on the hope and the comfort that belongs to God's people ultimately, even though they may suffer for a time for their sins, even though they may uh, know the, the struggle and the strife of life in a broken world, especially as they face the consequence of their sins, yet nonetheless God will restore them, God will sustain them and build them up. But in the midst of that, Isaiah 59 kind of stands out a bit as one of those chapters which couches that language of comfort in the midst of a call to repent, a call to acknowledge that, that we as God's people are still sinful. And we cannot take comfort in ourselves. We can't stand on our own merits because then we're not standing at all. So. Isaiah 59, the prophet declares, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words. And they speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice before their eye. They're in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. 
So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Amen. Amen indeed. What a a glorious word of hope to end a section of God's word that humbles us. And Lord's Day 2 Well, that's a summary of God's Word that humbles us. We've just confessed in Lord's Day 1 that our comfort uh, comprises belonging to Christ. But now Lord's Day 2 lays the foundation for that comfort, and it's a painful foundation. It asks us, how do you come to know your misery? And to that we answer, the law of God tells me. Well, what then does God's law require of us? The answer is that Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, I've preached through the catechism quite a few times now. I've taught the catechism for the better part of two decades, the catechism and the confession. I've introduced the concepts that we confess here to folks who were new in the faith, And also to those who were not in the faith, who were simply exploring Christianity. And almost universally, I have found, the three Lord's Days, beginning with this one, are the least popular of the bunch. And that's, well, that's no surprise. Who enjoys talking about their own sin, their own failures and shortcomings, and the righteous wrath of God that is earned by that sin? Maybe... Maybe we don't mind talking about how sin applies to other people, how other people do wrongly, how those people out there are earning up for themselves the wrath of God. But, but when we start talking about my sin, my guilt, my shortcomings, well, that's different. We know it's something the Bible addresses. There's no question about that. But we don't want to spend time talking about our sin, considering our need. And the minister who does that too often or too pointedly, well, pretty soon his elders start getting calls. That's about enough of that sin, that brokenness, that accusation. We need something uplifting. We need something joyful. We need need more of Christ and less of sin. But here's the thing, unless we spend the time to consider carefully our misery, we can't truly appreciate God's grace. You don't appreciate a beautiful spring day like today was until you've gone through the dark depths of winter. Nor do we appreciate the grace of God in Christ until we truly understand the ugliness and the misery of our sin. 
See, the comfort that we confess as Christians, it begins well before John 3.16. Kids, you know what John 3.16 is, right? One of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's where Jesus declares, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We often think of that as a beautiful summary of the gospel. It teaches us that our salvation is gracious. It's not something we've earned. That our salvation comes through Christ who did everything for us. That our salvation is received by faith as we trust in Christ. And John 3.16 shows us that our salvation is complete. There's nothing we must add, nothing we must accomplish in order for us to receive everything that we need. John 3.16 shows us a beautiful summary of the gospel. But our comfort as Christians requires more than a bare summary. Because if all we had was John 3.16, we might easily shrug and say, you know, that's very pretty, that's very nice. But that's not for me. I'm not one of those people. I'm not a drunk, I'm not a drug addict, I'm not a wife beater, I'm not a mass murderer. I'm pretty good. I I do all right. I help my neighbor. I love my wife. And as we saw this morning in Proverbs 1, in our complacency, we persist in our rebellion against God. We persist in the, the ignorance of sin. And so the first step, if we're to have the comfort of belonging to Christ, the first step is to open our eyes to the reality of who we are in our sin, in our natural state. And that's not a very pleasant place to look. But it's a place we must look. A thing we must understand. Or we will never truly treasure Christ the way we must. And it's to teach us about our misery, to demonstrate to us our need, that is the purpose of this first section of the Catechism. And at the very start of this section, which is only three Lord's Days long, but three very important Lord's Days, at the beginning of that section... We learn that Christian comfort arises from the revelation of sin-induced misery. That's our theme. That Christian comfort arises, it originates with the revelation, the demonstration by God of our sin-induced misery. And the first thing we have to see is that this is a misery that is revealed by God's righteous law. Lord's Day 2 tells us that we come to know our misery by God's law. Now, understand what that does not mean. It does not mean that the law is the source of our misery, or that the law makes us miserable, or that the law causes us to have a problem. You see, we already have a problem. And God's law is simply the way God shows it to us. It's the warning of that idiot light on your dashboard that looks like an engine. And all of a sudden it shows up. Now that light didn't cause your car to have a problem, but that light demonstrated to you that your car does in fact have a problem. And if you ignore it, pretty soon it'll start to flash and say you now have a bigger problem. But if you ignore that, or if you think that that's the problem and you just cover it over with a piece of electrical tape, the problem won't go away. You're just ignoring it. That light is there to demonstrate to you that there is a problem and that If you want your car to continue working well, you need to address the problem. Well, that's the law. It's that light on the dashboard that shows us we have a problem which we must address. Romans 7. 
Romans 7 says, What shall we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. The law is good. The law is a blessing from the Lord. But he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law reveals to us our sin. And so Romans 3 verse 20 says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. So how does that work? How does the law reveal to us our sin? Well, we know that God is just. We just heard as much in Isaiah 59, didn't we? According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. Our God is just. He has to repay rebellion against him. He has to uphold his commands, which say that there will be a cost for deviating from them. And God is not only just, he's also consistent. In other words, he doesn't change. Our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. So the standard by which he judges men is the same today as it was in the day of Moses, as it will be in the day of judgment. And he reveals that standard by means of his law. Psalm 25 teaches us to pray, Show me your paths, O Lord. Teach me your ways. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. If we would know the salvation of God, we need to be taught of God what He demands of us and what we need to do in response. We need to know what God is like and how God will judge, and how we can escape that judgment. Our call to worship this evening was a declaration of God's holiness. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He's high above all the peoples. He is holy. And because He is holy, we need to know the standard of holiness. We need to know the, the criteria by which He will judge. So that we can know whether we stand acceptably before him or whether we need help. We find that law very clearly set forth in the Ten Commandments. Right? That's a beautiful summary of God's law. That's why it's, it's included twice in the Old Testament. That's why we hear it every week. Because by that law, God demonstrates to us what he would have us do if we were to stand out, if we are to... Uh, demonstrate that we belong to Him in the midst of a world that's filled with rebellion and sin. If you are to be my people, if you are to be what I created you to be, then you need to have no other gods beside me. You need to make for yourself no images of God. You need to never take God's name in vain. You need to keep the Sabbath day holy. You need to honor your father and your mother. You need to kill no one. You need to uh, steal nothing. You need to commit no adultery. You need to never bear false witness against your neighbor. You need to keep your heart from coveting. This is a demonstration of how we are to reflect the image of God by rejecting the sins of the world that surround us. And the rest of the Old Testament applies those commands. Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those very concretely apply God's commands in, in concrete situations of old Israel. Demonstrating how God's people disobeyed the Lord and what God did in response to that. How seriously He takes His law. And how He would have them live out the law in their context. The historical books continue to show how God's word lives among, or God's law lives among the people and what happens when they reject that law. The prophets, they, they speak in a time 
when the law has been largely forsaken. And they proclaim God's judgment against those who forsake the law, but also what repentance looks like, what it means to turn back to God, where we can find hope in the midst of our law-breaking. Now, a lot of people don't like that. They say the Old Testament is just, it's law, it's judgment, it's condemnation. We don't want any part of that. Jesus came and now that's no longer. Now now we live in the era of grace. Now we live in the age when we don't have to worry about the law. The law is dead. The law is for back then. Now we live in an age of grace. Is that really so? Hmm. Well, Jesus didn't get the memo. Because in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he took the law and he said, this is the way you as my people shall live. In fact, one of the last things he said before going to the cross in John chapter 14 verse 15, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey my law. And in the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, he spends time taking that law and stripping away the outward focus that had grown around it. They had brought out these traditions that focused on the outward appearance of the life of man. Because we can handle the outward appearance. We can manipulate the way things look. So, you know, you you don't break the Sabbath. You honor the Sabbath day. And that means don't do any work. But, you know, you can travel this many steps from your house on the Sabbath. That's okay. And, you know, if you need to go twice that far, why don't you just pitch a tent at the extent of how far you're able to go, and that'll be a temporary home, and then you can go that many steps from that place too. And you know what? Why don't we just string up a rope around this area in which we live where all our houses are, and we'll call that our house, and we can take that many steps from that point. And you see, then they can control what their obedience to God looks like. They can disobey without appearing to disobey, and, and Jesus decried that. He says the law isn't about appearance. The law is about the heart. You've heard it said, don't kill your neighbor. I say to you, don't even hate him in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Good. I say to you, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her. Far from removing the law, Jesus takes that law and he makes it deeper. He applies it to the very heart, to the very thoughts, to the very marrow of us. You see, the law is important. We heard some time back from Romans 7. Romans 7 reminds us in the words of Paul that even for those who are saved, the law speaks to us with great power and it humbles us. Because as we look at that law, We recognize that it is good because it demonstrates the holiness and the righteousness of God. And we long to do what the law says. We long to uphold that righteous standard of the Lord. But time and time and time again, 
We confess with Paul, what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And he ends up crying out, Woe is me! Who will deliver me from this body of death? But then... Then he's able to confess where his hope is found. It's not until we begin with the law. It's not until we begin with that recognition of our misery in sin. That we can find true hope. And we need to recognize that this misery, it's not only revealed by God's righteous law, but as I just alluded to, it's a misery that's resident in our hateful hearts. How do I stack up? It's one thing to read the law each week and to say, yeah, yeah, that's bad. It's bad to steal. It's terrible to lie. Don't know how people can commit murder or adultery. Or even all those sinners over at Walmart breaking the Sabbath. It's terrible. But when we start asking, how about me? How about my heart? Where do I stand in relation to God's law in truth? The 10th commandment is the hardest one of all. Kids, do you know that? The 10th commandment is the hardest of all. Because everyone before that at least outwardly focuses on our deeds, on our actions. But the 10th commandment bypasses all the outer stuff and goes straight for the heart. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife nor his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do not covet. That's a desire in the heart. And if you look at that, do not desire your neighbor's house. That's a desire to steal. Do not desire, do not covet your neighbor's wife. That's a desire to commit adultery. And so it goes. It's a desire that is sinful. It's a desire that is hateful and And there is none of us that is exempt. There's not one of us that hasn't looked on someone who we perceived as having done us wrong or we perceived as having made us look bad and hated them in our heart. And that's murder. There's very few in this room who have not committed, probably none, who have not committed adultery in their hearts, who have not borne false witness against their neighbor, who have not misused the name of God or at least stood idly by while others did it next to them. And they gave permission by their silence. When we examine ourselves against His law, it ought to humble us. We can't be satisfied by just making the law a checklist. No images of God in the house? Check. No misuse of God's name? Check. No open dishonoring of dad and mom? Check. No, we have to go deeper. What have I hidden in my heart? What have I cherished in my heart? What have I allowed myself to daydream about? When we start doing that, we see how downright offensive we are. And then we begin to recognize the misery of our sin. Romans 3 tells us. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is terrible news. 
Because as we read in Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue has muttered perversity. God is holy and He will not allow in His presence those who have embraced defilement, sin, rebellion. And that's what we all have done. Justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. And yet justice and righteousness are the cornerstones of His throne. That's what He expects from His people, because that's what He made us to bear. So sin separates us from God. And more than that, it's worthy of God's just punishment. Our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. A few chapters before that, God said of such men, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. When its waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace, there is no comfort, there is no life for the wicked. And folks, the law reveals to us and our hearts testify that that's who we from the start were. That's why we don't like this Lord's Day. You know, it's fascinating that the Heidelberg Catechism when it speaks of God's law revealing our sin, it doesn't recite the Ten Commandments. It saves that for later. But instead, it, it recites the summary of God's law that Jesus spoke. You know why? Because that summary is even more comprehensive. We might be able to make excuses with the Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Well, you know, I'm pretty respectful of my parents. I never speak back. I never fail to do what they tell me to do and do it in a timely manner. I don't hate anyone. I don't... And down the road we go, you know. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I don't... I don't, I don't. But with those two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And which one of us can raise his hand and say, I have done that. We know better. And yet that's what we were made to do. That's what we were created to fulfill. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have done that? No hands better come up. We're great at loving ourselves. Putting ourselves first. Ensuring that our needs are met. Getting offended when we have been uh, sinned against. But recognizing our sins against our neighbor, we're not so great at. Recognizing his rights, putting him first putting ourselves last so that He can be prospered, that we're pretty bad at. But that's the standard. That's what we were created to do. That's what God made us to do. So what do we do about it? God's law reveals it. Our hearts are filled with it. What do we do about this misery? Well, the first step is to acknowledge it. To recognize and confess that we are miserable in our sin. Notice what, what the end of Isaiah 59 says. The Redeemer, verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. The Redeemer comes to those who turn from their sin. 
as long as we stand comfortable in our sin, as long as we maintain that complacency with the ignorance of unbelief, we have no hope. So the first step is to acknowledge our misery, to admit our sin, to confess that we too have sinned against our neighbor and mostly against God. And then we need to turn from that sin, to repent. God calls us not once, but daily to choose Him over our sin, to confess and repent of our rebellion. Each day, each hour, each moment that that sin comes before us, we're called to turn away from it, to reject it, to choose God instead. No matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence, we're called to acknowledge we've done wrong. We deserve wrath. And then we need to seek redemption outside of ourselves. The Lord saw it and it displeased Him that there was no justice He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. His own righteousness, it sustained him. Look at verse 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor the mouth of your descendants nor the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. We need to rest, not in what we have done, not in what we have accomplished, not what we ever will accomplish, but only in what God has accomplished through Christ. As He hung on the cross, He said, it is finished. It's completed. It's done. There's nothing left to accomplish. He who was righteous became sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our only hope. That's our only escape. But we can only have that escape if we know our misery. And if we confess it and turn from it. Christ avails everything but only for those who know that they avail nothing. That they can accomplish nothing. Brothers and sisters, the simple truth, the simple but very hard to acknowledge truth of Lord's Day 2 is the simple but hard to acknowledge truth of all the Bible. And that's that true comfort arises. Not in what we have done, not in what the government does, not in what our community or our family accomplish. Our true comfort rises from the revelation of sin-induced misery. Only as we acknowledge that God's law condemns us. Only as we acknowledge that what rises from our hearts is only evil all the time as long as we're left to ourselves. Only then can we acknowledge our sin, turn from it, and seek the help that is entirely outside of ourselves in Christ. But in Him, in Him there is life, there is hope, there is comfort eternal that can never be taken from us. So brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge That our hope is in Him, not in us. And that that hope is hope that's secure. To Him be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, You are so good and so gracious. Impart to our hearts a true recognition of the misery that abides within us. That we might turn from it and hate it. 
and that we might seek our hope, our help, our life entirely and only in Christ. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.